Hello, I'm Professor Ursula Kilkelly. I'm Dean of the School of Law here at University College Cork and welcome to the School of Law podcast. On this episode, I'll be speaking with Bob Schwartz, who's Phyllis W. Beck Chair in Law at Temple University Beasley School of Law and co-founder of Juvenile Law Centre. Uh, Bob was its Executive Director between 1982 and 2015. So Bob, welcome to UCC. It's great to be here, Ursula. And thank you for joining me today. So if we could maybe start at the, the beginning of the Juvenile Law Centre story, can you tell us a little bit about why you and your colleagues decided to set up Juvenile Law Centre coming out of law school in, in the 1970s? Well, yes, uh, there were four of us who were together at Temple Law School in the early 70s, and we had different experiences working with children. I, after college, run a youth centre for, for children and taught at an alternative school and had different kinds of experiences than my colleagues. But uh, Marshall Levick, uh, Phil Margolis, and Judy Chomsky and I wanted to practice law together, were interested in setting up a public interest law firm, and were looking for a population that was underserved or badly served by the law. And children jumped out at us, given both our experience and our sense of the landscape. So our last year of law school, 1974-75, we began talking with people who were in the field and saw that there was a huge opportunity. So we were able to get pro bono lawyers to incorporate us and get us our tax-exempt status. And we spent the summer after our third year, uh, that 1975, we had bar exams to take, of course, but to let people know that we would be around and to begin to let folks know that we will be open for business come the fall and being able to help children in a way that had never been done before. And so what was the legal landscape like for children at that time? The United States Supreme Court eight years earlier had given children a constitutional right to counsel when they were charged with crimes, at least a right to counsel at their trials with certain other constitutional protections. There were some other constitutional gains in terms of uh, free speech uh, that students gained in the late 1960s. But by and large, children's rights was an uncharted field. And it wasn't until the time that we were getting started that we benefited from the passage at the federal and state level of numerous new statutes that created rights that we were suddenly in a position to enforce, uh, such as special education laws, mental health laws regarding commitment of children to mental hospitals, juvenile justice laws designed to keep children out of adult jails and to keep runaways and truants out of lockups along the way. So laws were just being passed, including uh, new laws in child protection as well, that we were in a position to both define for the legal community and uh, to represent children in cases involving those new laws. So those legal developments clearly gave you a lot to work with. And as you say, there were a lot of children who needed representation. And your early work really focused on providing that day-to-day representation for children. Can you tell us a little bit about the nature of that work, the kind of cases that you took at that time? Yes, yes we saw ourselves as something like a storefront operation, even though we were on the ninth floor of an office building sharing a doctor's office during our first year. And it wasn't until our second year that we were able to get funding and actually get an office of our own with a copier and a new typewriter <laughs> and all that went with having a law office. The uh, cases that came in were of all sorts. Uh, and the interesting thing about our early years is that children's rights was seen as any legal issue affecting children. So yes, there were child protection cases and neglect cases and children charged with crimes. 
as well as children being transferred to adult criminal court. But we also dealt with school expulsion, school discipline, special education laws, mental health commitments to mental hospitals. I did work, for example, on children who wanted their names changed or had difficulty getting transcripts from the last private school they attended because their grandmother hadn't paid the tuition and they couldn't get into the new school until they got a transcript. There were uh, some who were entitled to death benefits through our Social Security Act that a relative was receiving instead and not passing on to the child. And the child was not fed or clothed in an appropriate way. So there was a wide range of issues uh, on the individual transactional level. Let's solve this problem for this child. We also did some very early litigation along the way. And my colleague, Marsha Levick, who is our expert in litigation and appellate work and just spectacular at it, was an early advocate of more aggressive, affirmative litigation to establish rights of children. So, you know, we dealt with conditions of confinement in Philadelphia's juvenile detention center. But Marshall also brought cases involving the use of isolation in a suburban county's juvenile detention center. There were other areas of detention that she litigated over, as well as some school discipline issues that were arising uh, in the mid to late 70s. I remember litigating over the challenge that a foster youth had in getting home after four years because he had just been sort of lost in the foster care system. So we did some affirmative litigation. We did some appellate work, but mostly we did a lot of individual client representation. It was a time when we did, as I like to say, retail work in the Philadelphia area, one case at a time in any area in which a child needed a lawyer. So Juvenile Law Centre did eventually over time move from that day-to-day representation, the retail side of the of, of things, as you say, to the more strategic work, perhaps at state and at national level. But that presumably was a gradual evolution. I mean, or was it as was it a, a decision that you made to focus more on appellate work on the strategic side, the affirmative action side of, of litigation, or what, what prompted that that change or that evolution? We changed for a number of reasons, and it was a very gradual change over time. We found over the 40 years that I was there a need to reinvent ourselves several times for lots of reasons, some of them economic, just in terms of being able to get funding to do work that would have enough of an impact. One of the things that happened, as we realized in representing children in the Philadelphia region, is that our work was affected by what our state capital was doing in passing legislation or what our state Supreme Court and appellate courts were doing, so that our work was connected to the work of lawyers for all Pennsylvania children. Uh, We did put out a number of publications that guided Pennsylvania practice at the time, but we also worked on commissions and task forces and did appellate work and policy work to reform what was happening in the state. We changed our work over time gradually as well to move from an office that represented children from birth to age 21 to represent children who were primarily adolescents and older adolescents, you know, 10 to 21, because the field was changing so rapidly that our ability to be experts in early childhood development and the systems that serve those children was very different than our ability to represent children who could direct us and who were shaping the world of adolescence and the law. So through the 80s became more of a Pennsylvania presence, but we also filed a few amicus briefs in the United States Supreme Court with colleagues, uh, one around juvenile detention and preventive detention in 1983, another in 1988 around child protection, whether children had 
constitutional protections to be free from abuse under certain circumstances. Uh, I would say we lost both of those uh, over time. We did uh, a lot more collaboration with colleagues around legislative work, both in Washington, D.C., And along around 1990, uh, we had an opportunity uh, from Chicago, our colleagues there, to help orchestrate a national amicus effort in support of a case that was designed to force states to do more to keep children in their own homes rather than be placed in foster care. And our discovery back then that there was a place for us nationally, that we were respected nationally, led us through the 90s to increase that work as we gradually reduced the work that we did in other areas. So part of our metamorphosis was dropping work, for example, around an adoption project that we had in the early 90s as one example, and to take on work that became our core competence in child welfare, which involved kids coming into the foster care system, or we worked to keep kids out of it as well as the justice system involving children in both juvenile justice and the adult criminal justice system, because all along we had done work representing kids in the adult system, gradually reducing the individual caseload over time and shifting to a wholesale business in which we could do strategic change that would affect thousands of kids rather than one kid at a time. It wasn't that the one kid at a time wasn't important, but that we had reached a stage of institutional development where we could have more of an impact for more children if we did uh, the national work, the appellate work, the more affirmative litigation, the legislative work at the same time. And so the MacArthur Foundation, particularly the, the MacArthur Research Network, came around about that time and really was quite formative in the work and the impact of Juvenile Law Centre. Can you tell uh, us a little bit about that? Yes, long about 1994, 1995, Laurie Garduki at the MacArthur Foundation was looking to set up a new research network that would deal with psychology and or mental health and something related to children or adults or seniors and She did focus groups and meetings with practitioners and researchers and experts in the field and settled on juvenile justice and adolescent development. Uh, She arranged to have Larry Steinberg, who is a developmental psychologist and professor at Temple University in Philadelphia, to chair the network. And that officially began in 1996. And it was in response to the effort in the U.S. to try more kids as adults and to be a lot more punitive Uh, regarding children's misbehavior. The U.S. had already started to see a decline in juvenile crime beginning around 93 or 94, but legislation that was passed around the same time was very, very harsh and draconian, and many very young children were being tried in the adult system. Uh, In the late 80s, we were involved at Juvenile Law Center with a nine-year-old who was being tried as an adult. Uh, Even in the year 2000, Marcia and I were involved with an 11-year-old who was being tried as an adult uh, in Philadelphia. So the research network was designed to take a look at whether or not the law was aligned with the developmental science. And the remarkable thing about its 10 years of work was it created a body of research that transformed law in the United States in many, many ways, but it pushed courts and legislators to recognize that teenagers were different, something that society has known from the beginning of time. But now we had data to show how and why and where those differences were legally relevant. And MacArthur changed the world on kids' competence to stand trial, on their blameworthiness for their offenses, and on the ways that children stop misbehaving over time as they mature into productive adults. 
And so Roper versus Simmons was probably the first really significant case that used if not that direct evidence, then used the research evidence that had been built up around the work of the MacArthur Foundation. And then that led from there to subsequent cases that really start to challenge the very punitive sentences that children receive uh, when tried as adults in the United States. Yes, you're absolutely right. Roper was uh, a breaking point uh, in terms of American jurisprudence regarding kids. And we weren't sure at the time whether the case was about kids or whether it was about the death penalty. So <clears throat> Marsha uh, was very involved in the amicus effort. Uh, Juvenile Law Center, through her, uh, organized uh, the amicus work uh, around a lot of NGOs and child advocacy organizations in the United States. And we were part of a sort of 16 amicus brief effort to persuade the Supreme Court that executing people for crimes they committed as minors was not a good idea and was, in fact, unconstitutional under our Eighth Amendment. The decision drew on some of the work that Larry Steinberg had done, including an article he co-authored with Elizabeth Scott, a Columbia Law School professor, called Less Guilty by Reason of Adolescence. Not that kids were blameless, but that they were less blameworthy. And uh, Justice Kennedy, writing for the court, bought that idea that these are not the worst of the worst. Now, the Supreme Court had not before then really been willing to address proportionality of sentencing in any cases other than the death penalty. So many of us thought, I know I thought, that Roper was basically about that the death penalty is different and that's that's that, but we were wrong in a wonderful way <laughs> because it really was about adolescence and the law. And subsequent cases built on Roper and the developing and emerging neuroscience that showed how kids' brains were developing in different ways to find that kids had to be questioned differently under our constitution uh, because they understand adult questioning in ways that are different than adults understand that. Uh, issues of life sentences without possibility of parole, life sentences for non-capital offenses. The courts began to chip away and state courts began to jump in and change the jurisprudence around sentencing and mandatory sentences for minors because they should be treated differently than adults. And that was a tidal wave across the country that affected almost every system that involves teenagers and older older teenagers in particular. Uh, foster youth in America have more statutory rights now to stay in care past the age of 18 because they're seen as still developing adults, still forming the identities of the people they're about to become. You even see insurance companies relying on the brain research in terms of how kids uh, are insured while driving. And many states have passed laws to limit the number of teenagers who could be together in a car <laughs> when they're driving, because we know that teenagers together uh, in a moving vehicle uh, can, be, can be dangerous. So the, the MacArthur research, and in particular, the leadership of Larry Steinberg, changed the legal landscape in the United States that, uh, and, that is still changing. And there is also the opportunity when you're in an organization with national profile like Juvenile Law Center where your reach is very extensive mm. to, I suppose, have, have issues and concerns brought to you that you then end up 
litigating either, sort of taking advantage of the position that you hold as the country's leading advocacy organisation for children. And that happened much closer to home, though, in Lucerne County in, uh, in Pennsylvania, not very long ago. Yes. And Luzerne County is sort of coal country in upstate Pennsylvania, where coal was once the big industry. And as one author put it, uh, corruption replaced it as the primary industry. Uh, I would just say before getting to Luzerne that there were other opportunities that we took advantage of that uh, Marshall Levick is particularly good at in seizing the opportunities around developmental issues regarding sentencing of kids in the adult system, lengthy adult sentences, mandatory sentences, so that, that we get called a lot or Juvenile Law Center gets called a lot, and Marsha is brilliant at uh, seeing what's important to work on. And she was, as was uh, Laval Miller-Wilson and other attorneys on our staff in 2007, when we got a call from the mother of Hillary Transu, who told us that her daughter had been locked up after a trial that lasted about 90 seconds before a judge in Luzerne County for her MySpace parody of the vice principal at her school. And... This uh, was a case that caught our attention in for a lot of reasons. One, we were celebrating the 40th anniversary of the United States Supreme Court case where the facts were very similar. A boy had made a lewd phone call to a neighbor, and that was the case that led the U.S. Supreme Court to give kids a constitutional right to a lawyer at trial. Forty years later, Hillary, the same age, 15, good student in high school, had done a parody uh, and was brought to court and charged with harassment and the judge said, what makes you think you could do that kind of crap? Didn't, don't you remember when I came to your school and said, if any of you appear before me, I'm sending you away? And Hillary either didn't remember or hesitated, but the judge ended up saying, you know, shackle her and get her out of here. So she was dragged from the courtroom in chains and locked up for a nothing offense, really. Hillary's mother called us in part because she f was calling around and finally reached a law professor uh, in New Jersey with whom we had worked where she was at the public defender's uh, office in Philadelphia who said, you really have to call Juvenile Law Center. And we ran with this. I think Marsha had the idea that we could look at the cases of a number of children who had had similar experiences because we filed through Laval, one of our other attorneys, a habeas corpus, got Hillary out. And she said, I wasn't the only one in there who had been treated the same way. There were lots of kids treated like me. So we began uh, a year of information gathering, of staking out the courthouse and looking at data that was supplied by state officials to discover that over half the kids in Luzerne County were tried without lawyers, were, quote, waiving their right to a lawyer, very different than the 5% rate that existed in the rest of the state. And eventually, we filed a request with our state Supreme Court using something called an application for the court to exercise its King's Bench jurisdiction to investigate Luzerne and to give appropriate relief. That made headlines in Luzerne County in the local papers. That was in 2008, uh, the spring of 2008. We were called shortly thereafter by the FBI, uh, which investigates federal crimes in the United States, which apparently was investigating the judge who sent Hillary away and his colleague, the former president judge in Luzerne County, for being involved with local mobsters. The uh, FBI investigation showed over the next few months that the judges had been taking bribes from the builder of a for-profit detention center that was ran to almost $3 million in order to keep the beds of the new detention center filled. 
Uh, so it was a good business proposition for them. We didn't know all that at the time. We were waiting for our state Supreme Court to act. And we filed a second reminder petition in December of 2008, asking the court to remember that we were still around and that we had more evidence of more kids being hurt badly by the judge in this county. And the court in early January of 2009 denied our motion with one sentence, you know, just a per curiam denied. And a little over two weeks after that, the U.S. attorney for that federal district involving Luzerne County filed bills of information with tentative guilty pleas for the two judges admitting to taking money in return for locking kids up. That created a firestorm both nationally and internationally, put a lot of pressure on our state Supreme Court that quickly granted our motion to reopen the case and to allow us to proceed. And they appointed a special master to investigate the thousands of cases that had happened since 2003 in which kids had been locked up for no apparent reason. So there were lots of things that happened as a result. And it was the result of our being open to getting the phone call from the mother to recognize the case's importance, to recognize that we had had a run-in with the judge who locked kids up some years earlier, in which he vowed that he would never again lock anyone up without a lawyer. So now we had a judge who was a recidivist, <laughs> and we wanted to make sure that he was held accountable and that the kids' adjudications were reversed and they were freed. But Marsha and other attorneys were involved, and with the affirmative litigation, they got millions of dollars in damages. We also got appointed master to agree to vacate all the adjudications for the prior five years done by that judge so that the records were expunged. And we also worked with the state legislature to change laws to end shackling of kids in court to get a mandatory right to counsel in almost every circumstance, regardless of parents' ability to pay. And there were other reforms as well that are still durable today. That was a big deal for us. And I don't think we ever saw anything quite like the attention on those children and the abuses that those kids were subjected to. And our challenge was to remind folks that while this was happening in Luzerne, that kids involved with the justice system were treated badly in many places, not necessarily by judges who were on the take, but because there were abuses of power and an over-reliance on incarceration when kids could be at home. And the United States, much like you've seen here in Ireland and elsewhere in the world has seen a huge reduction in youth crime and arrests, not only for the last 10 years, but certainly for the last 25 years. And the reforms of Luzerne have not led to an increase in crime, but have left lots of kids much better off. And the Kids for Cash scandal, as you say, had had lots of different dimensions to it. And the reforms that you've outlined there give a really brilliant example of or illustration of of what can come out of a single kind of incident like that. In particular, I suppose I'm wondering about the relationship between your litigation and the wider policy and impact work that you do, uh, the non-litigation advocacy, if you like. Can you say a little bit about the experience of Juvenile Law Centre in those other non-courtroom spaces uh, for affecting change and influencing reform? All of our work, we believe has to advance the themes for kids that we're trying to advance. And as I said, we've gone through different iterations. We've had different themes, but some of them have been constant, keeping kids out of state care, unnecessarily placed in state care, protecting youth and uh, advancing a developmental approach to the law so that uh, the law is aligned with what we know about who kids are and how they become productive adults. So our our work on task forces, committees, publications, bar association uh, efforts, 
are all aligned with the other work that we're doing at Juvenile Law Center, or that Juvenile Law Center is now doing, I'm no longer there, to, uh, to advance those goals. So from our very early days, we began writing monographs, publications, pamphlets, law review articles, journal articles that would advance our themes. We wanted from the mid-70s on to have an intellectual component to our work that both academics could rely on, as well as policymakers, parents, because we had material that was written for lay people, as well as for, for scholars and judges. All of that was designed to advance the work, to empower parents and kids to advance their own rights. You know, so in the foster care area, uh, we would have a Know Your Rights pamphlet so that kids could be their own best spokespeople along the way. We did a publication for our Disability Rights Network some years ago on uh, what parents should know about the juvenile justice system when your child has disabilities, you know, to advance sort of the power of people who are normally powerless, you know, to, to navigate those systems. Uh, and we also discovered that our publications and task forces and committee work influenced colleagues and other professionals around the country uh, in a way that changed laws and changed court decisions. So the power of the pen was quite substantial for us over our 40 years that I was there. And in terms of the the shift from that day-to-day representation to the more strategic work at the national level, one of the risks inherent in that is that you lose a connection with, with the very young people that you're trying to effect change for. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, how Juvenile Law Centre has really bridged that gap, the kind of youth advocacy work that you now do? Yes, uh, it was very important for us to stay connected to kids when we represented kids day to day, our daily representation helped us understand what was important for the uh, wider population, as opposed to sort of bringing idiosyncratic cases that wouldn't affect more than a handful of kids. When we ended our direct representation, we needed a replacement. And about 10 or 12 years ago, we introduced our first youth engagement group called Juveniles for Justice, or J4J, as we like to call it, which was uh, about a dozen kids who were in or recently in the juvenile justice system. And we had foundation money and support to both bring them to the office once a week, so we paid for their transportation, provided food when they were at our meetings, and pay them a small stipend for participating. We taught them about the system that they knew about from the inside, from another angle. And we worked with them on developing advocacy projects where they would become the advocates for change. And it was a remarkable phenomenon to see the zeal and the intelligence with which these kids uh, ran with their issues. Uh, they were wonderful, far better than us lawyers when they testified in front of legislators who loved to hear from youth themselves about their experiences. We had them trained by media consultants in public speaking and the use of PowerPoint and presentation of information. So they became not only expert at thinking about how change gets made, but thinking about the tools they could use to advance the change they sought to make. We added Youth Fostering Change, a group of former foster youth or current foster youth as well, who worked on foster care issues for kids aging out of the foster care system. And both of those now are staffed by a social worker and other staff 
staff at Juvenile Law Center who help uh, empower youth each year. There's a new class. There's overlap. There's a little retention and a new class that comes in. And the one class screens the next class coming in. They're part of the admissions process. So we, we want kids who really want to be active and who are thought to have the capacity to be reflective about their own experience and make change. But they've also then been advancing the strategic themes that are important to Juvenile Law Center. So they're not working on different highways, although they may be working on a different lane in the highway that we occupy, but they're very much part of our team. And by way of conclusion, Bob, you stepped down uh, from Juvenile Law Center in, in 2015 after an extraordinary career with uh, an organization that has had uh, immeasurable impact really nationally and then increasingly internationally too. Have you, in the time that has passed since 2015, had time to reflect on any anything that you would do differently or what advice would you have for, for those of us who are advocating for reform and change today? Well, uh, that's an interesting question because uh, there are organizational things that I might have done differently. You know, for example, when we created our first board of directors, I might have engaged them more thoughtfully about fundraising and helping us survive. It took me a while and took us a while to realize the importance of having a strong board who can help us in many ways, thinking strategically, helping us manage budgets and finances as well as raise money. The ability to rely on fellowships and to build our staff outside of grants came relatively late to us. You know, we had our first fellow in 1995. The uh, No, it was actually a few years earlier than that from Skadden, Skadden Arps, but we could have done a little bit more in, in that regard. I don't really have much in the way of second guessing on the issues that we chose to work on or the strategies we used to achieve our goals over the 40 years that I was there. I think that there are some things we could have done differently about ensuring the institutional survival of Juvenile Law Center. But frankly, beginning around 2000, we had the resources with, with the right board of directors. We saved money, built an endowment, and created an organization that I knew when I stepped down in 2015 would endure well after I was gone. And that is something that I'm very proud of. And knowing that the staff there today, with my successor, Sue Mangold and Marsha Levick, who is just extraordinary in so many ways, uh, leading a team of superb lawyers in a way that I think will go on for uh, as long as I'm around. Well, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of that story with us today. We're really grateful to you for being with us here in Cork and for all that you've done and um, working with the law school here and, and together across the Atlantic. Um, that's all we have time for in this episode. My thanks again to Bob Schwartz for being with us today. And remember, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can subscribe to future episodes via your podcast provider. I'm Ursula Kelly. Thank you very much for listening.